welcome to the Spiritual Awakenings podcast. I'm David Lorimer, co-editor of a new book, Spiritual Awakenings, Scientists and Academics Describe Their Experiences. It's published by the Academy for the Advancement of Post-Materialist Sciences and is available in paperback and Kindle editions. In this series of weekly podcasts, we'll be sharing the 57 original essays together with introductions and epilogue from my co-editor, Professor Marjorie Willicott. We hope you enjoy them. Part 4. STEs Occurring as Synchronistic Transmissions Through the Word We have included in this category synchronistic transmissions that occur through the written word. One author describes his experience during a visit to the Boston Library when he was in high school. On one of the shelves, there was a big book with Plato's name on it. I had heard of Plato, but had read nothing by him and had no idea what his philosophy was all about. I took the book down and opened it. It opened to his allegory of the cave. As I was reading the allegory, my body started to react, tears flowing freely, chills up and down the spine, and my whole body almost in convulsions. I remember trying to stop it. After all, it was a public space, and people were around. But I couldn't stop it. While my body was doing its thing, my mind was understanding Plato's allegory completely. This understanding is not the kind of understanding that comes with effort. The understanding was immediate and effortless. This theme of awakening through the written word is actually a perennial one, in that many traditions talk about the word as being one with the absolute creative potential of the universe. In India, the term that is used for the divine word is vak or vach, often considered as a goddess who is the divine inspiration for poets and visionaries. And in the Christian tradition, logos, the word, is also considered to be divine, as in the phrase, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In the Tantric tradition of India, there is an understanding that when an enlightened teacher shares wisdom through a written text, there can be a direct transmission, sankranti, of the deep meaning of that text to a qualified reader, that is, one who is receptive and becomes deeply absorbed. In reading these essays, we invite you to consider whether the individual was in a state of readiness for this transmission through the written word, which was accompanied by a sense of receptivity, presence, and a stilling of the mind, allowing the awakening and expanded state of awareness to occur. Think about times when you have been reading and felt a deep connection to the words or author, perhaps experiencing a direct transmission of meaning going directly to your heart. At the Library, A Formative Experience by Neil Grossman. Introduction. Although the event that I'm about to describe occurred in my teen years, it was not until somewhat recently that I recognized it as a spiritual awakening of some sort. 
Some 40 years after the experience, I casually mentioned it to my former mentor, Houston Smith, and he was so taken by it that he referred to it in several of his later writings. Houston's reaction caused me to take it more seriously, but it was not until almost 20 years after that, in discussing the event with Marjorie Woolacott, that I came to recognize it as a spiritually transformative experience. Actually, because the experience happened in my formative years, it didn't so much transform me as it formed me. That's why when people would ask me over the years why, unlike the great majority of academically trained philosophers, why I was so open to spirituality, I did not have an answer except to say that I was always open to it in that I could not point to any experience like a near-death experience before which I was an atheist materialist and after which I was not. But now I can. A little bit about my background. My parents were deeply committed to social justice and believed strongly that religion is the opiate of the people. In my early teens, I had completely internalized their beliefs, would have identified as an atheist materialist, and had my sights set on MIT, where I hoped to study theoretical physics. After all, my teenage mind reasoned, to understand anything, one must know what it is made of. And since everything is made up of atoms, the best or maybe only way to understand anything, even human beings, is through understanding what they are made up of. I vaguely recall <laughs> stating something like this in my application for admission to MIT. Yet when I got to MIT, I took courses on Eastern religions and devoured the philosophical and spiritual writings of the great physicist whose equations I was solving in my physics courses. This is hardly the sort of thing a materialist atheist would do. Now I can understand that at the time I was seeking for external validation for what I had experienced while still in high school. I need to mention one more influence on me before describing the experience. My parents, in addition to being Marxist atheists, were avid music lovers, and I grew up with Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, and Tchaikovsky. Around the age of 14, Beethoven's music began to affect me viscerally. Tears would come often when I listened to his music, and occasionally I would even experience chills up and down my spine. Although I consciously identified as an atheist materialist throughout high school, I began to doubt that the materialist paradigm could explain why Beethoven's music has such a powerful effect on me. His music was not just beautiful, it was true. But this is not a truth that could be accounted for by materialism. At the library. It was the summer between my junior and senior years at high school. I remember spending a lot of days exploring the city of Boston, especially the many historical sites. One day I found myself on the stairs of the Boston Public Library. It was one of those magnificent old stone buildings, many times larger than the public library in Cambridge, with which I was familiar. The reader should perhaps bear in mind, or the listener should perhaps bear in mind, that in 1958 there was no internet, and all knowledge, the collective knowledge of humankind, was to be found in libraries. Entering the library that day was perhaps, for me, an experience not unlike what a devout Catholic might have upon entering the Vatican. I was young and impressionable, as they say, and was moved to tears by all the books and the knowledge contained in said books. So this was my mindset as I wandered in awe from room to room, each room filled floor to ceiling with rows and shelves of books. On one of the shelves, there was a big book with Plato's name on it. I had heard of Plato, but had read nothing by him and had no idea what his philosophy was all about. I took the book down and opened it. It opened 
directly to his allegory of the cave. In retrospect, that alone is something of a miracle. As I was reading the allegory, my body started to react in the same way it had been reacting to Beethoven, except much, much more intensely. Tears flowed freely, chills up and down the spine, and my whole body almost in convulsions. I remember trying to stop it. After all, I was in a public space and people were around, but I couldn't stop it. When my body was doing its thing, my mind was understanding Plato's allegory completely. This understanding is not the kind of understanding that comes with effort. The understanding was immediate and effortless. I knew without doubt that the worldview expressed through that allegory is true. This worldview, of course, is the same worldview that is embraced by the mystics of all traditions, and it is the same worldview embraced by deep near-death experiences. Later, when I took philosophy courses at MIT, and then again in grad school, it seemed to me that no one else, including maybe especially the professors, except, of course, for Houston Smith, had any real understanding of Plato's allegory. I was puzzled about this for many years. How could they read Plato and not understand what he is talking about? But perhaps the right question to ask is, how could a 16-year-old boy read Plato and understand completely what he was talking about? Reflections. As I reflect on the experience, the understanding that came to me effortlessly that day in the library is akin to the experience of beauty I have while listening to classical music. This kind of understanding is very different from the kind of understanding that academics are familiar with. My understanding of, say, the quantum theory or, or electromagnetism or relativity came about after lengthy study over many years. Indeed, my understanding of other philosophers like Kant, Spinoza, Plotinus, and even many of the dialogues of Plato came to me in the usual way after much study and always more or less tentatively. But my understanding of Plato's philosophy came to me at once without the usual discursive intellect mulling things over and over and over. What was it about that experience that cemented in my mind a complete understanding and agreement with the spiritual worldview of Plato's allegory? This understanding never left me, despite being surrounded for 40 years by colleagues who were of the atheist materialist persuasion, and who, I might add, <laughs> controlled both my salary and career, or lack thereof. I seriously doubt that what was happening to my body, the chills, trembling tears, explains anything. I'm now open to a kind of explanation that would not previously occur to me, and it's only my familiarity with mediums and, and the studies thereof that open this kind of explanation to me. Mediums routinely talk about how they have to raise their vibrations and the spirits have to lower theirs in order for communication to take place. Now, I have no precise idea uh, what this concept of vibrations really means, but I suspect we all get the general idea. Maybe something like this happened to me in the library that day. Plato was raising my vibrations, not so much that I could get out of the cave and see the sun, but enough so that I could see with my mind's eye the worldview expressed through the allegory. This explanation that Plato himself was involved in my understanding of his allegory is bolstered by the fact that for the past 15 years or so, my writing has taken the form of inner conversations with my favorite philosophers, Plato, Socrates, Spinoza, and William James. Two rather lengthy books have been completed, one published, the other pending. While writing, I did not consciously think or feel I was communicating with, the, with deceased philosophers. After all, I've been teaching these guys for decades and had no doubt internalized their views. It could all be coming from my own subconscious mind, or so I thought. But when I go back and read what I had written, 
or what was written through me, there was a sense of spontaneity to it, as there would be in real unscripted conversations among humans. Moreover, the material would go off in unexpected directions, as if I were not fully in control. And to be complete about this, I should probably mention that several different mediums over the years, independently of one another and without my raising the subject, stated that they see spirits helping me with a writing project. One even mentioned Plato's by name. Little did that 16-year-old boy know that by opening a book with Plato's name on it, he would be setting an irreversible course for the whole of his life to come. Thanks so much for downloading the Spiritual Awakenings podcast. Do join us for the next episode.